welcome to Doc Student 101, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Lania Rademacher, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. This episode is the second of a two-part conversation we had with Dr. Rachel Slaymaker and Dr. Berlin Fang. Rachel and Berlin are both faculty at Abilene Christian University and were faculty while they were doing their doctoral work. We decided to break this conversation into two parts. This part centers upon finding peace with being good enough in a doc program. We hope you enjoy this as much as we enjoyed talking with our friends. Um, because I know you both as friends, I feel like I feel like I know your backstories a little bit differently than I know the backstories of most students who I just know them because they're a little icon on my screen. No, I'm, I'm serious. At graduation, um, I, I ask people to tell me who they are because they don't look the same as their little avatar. You know, my own, my own uh, dissertation student, I was his chair and I thought he was like really, really tall guy. And so when he walked up, it took me a minute to recognize who he was because he wasn't tall, you know, um, but I know your backstories and I know, you know, the, I know how busy you are. Uh, I know you have avocational responsibilities, you have family responsibilities. And, 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 and so when I ask this question of you guys, I'm seriously asking, how did you get this done while you were being a parent and while you were being um, a, an employee and while you were being a, a, a church member and while you were um, being a translator, how did you get this done while you were doing the other things that were also important to you? Uh, well, uh, I, I'll start and I, I know everybody is, is very busy. Uh, I am teaching a course right now, EDT. And I'm so surprised that some of the students are juggling so many balls. And we have a student who is the mom of eight kids and she's had a full-time job. And I, I don't know how um, she managed it, but you know, um, I know Rachel has been teaching several courses while doing this EDD and I, I have kids. So I think one, one way I do, do this is I, I, I try to uh, compartmentize my things. You know, I, you know, when I'm just working on stuff, I do not uh, let, you know, other things distract me. That's um, that's one thing technically uh, that I did. Um, another thing that I think would be helpful is that you will have the will <laughs> to complete it. I, I'm just telling myself, this is the main thing for the next couple of years. If I don't do this, you know, then I'm ashamed to myself, okay? That's <laughs> because I... This is the second, you know, the program I haven't finished. So I, I have to make the, the main thing, the main thing. Okay, I just read a book about called Essentialist. So as there's, as there are certain times in your life you have to, you know, trim down your life a little bit to you know, keep the main thing growing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I used to be writing a lot for newspapers and, and, and I translated books. I just, um, you know, stopped many of this, okay, or all of this, while I'm doing my my uh, EDD program, because I want to take this to completion. Uh, and number two um, is uh, some something that I get find inspiration inspiration from is from my kids, because I just find them, you know, quite a, different from many families. I just often get inspired by my own kids, because they are hardworking, 
and kids. And we, when they are working late at night, practicing their cello and doing their things, and I just tell myself, oh, maybe I should um, stop watching Netflix. <laughs> maybe I should get one more uh, paragraph done. Okay, so that's I get inspired by them. So I do not necessarily think that uh, I, I give them as much inspiration as they give me. And I acknowledge that in my uh, acknowledgement uh, of the dissertation. Um, so that's this, these are a few things that I did. In, in the past, when I was uh, working on multiple projects, I actually, I literally purchased a software called Freedom, okay? All that software does is to, to stop my access to the internet <laughs> for hours that I specified so that I can work on my things. And if, even if I change my mind, I cannot get my internet back. The, the two hours that I specified has to pass before I could get my connection back. So basically I put myself into that cage of work, okay? That's what I did uh, sometime in the past, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, so my kids, when I started the program, my kids were five and eight, so pretty young. And what I did, I mean, family-wise, and I think personally, what I did is first I reduced our schedule. So they were not in all the sports things and the music things and the, all the transportation stuff that's required in the evenings. We kept a pretty basic schedule in the evenings and I simplified meals. Like it was like, you know, the first day, Monday, it's like mac and cheese Monday. Tuesday was Taco Tuesday. Wednesday was whatever you get Wednesday. I mean, it was just, I, I had to do that for my own sanity because making decisions all day at work and then trying to stay up later when they go to bed and make decisions about coursework and writing, I had to just simplify all kinds of things for my kids and my family. And then, you know, I had to let go of things around the house. I mean, some of the first things I did after I graduate was like fix a hole in the wall that had been there for, you know, two months because we'd had a plumbing issue. And I was, you know, my husband would, would say, when are we going to deal with this? And I'm like, let me just finish. Let me just, let me just defend. And then we'll figure it out because I didn't have the brain space to do all the things, you know? So I, I think that that's what it looked like at home a little bit. And then as far, you know, Berlin mentioned blocking times off and I was, you know, because we had a good ritual and my kids kind of knew what to expect each day, then after bedtime, I would stay up for one or two hours and work. But I was very into, like I'd heard friends who had families while going through their program, they'd say, oh, I'd stay up until three o'clock in the morning doing whatever. And I really tried to be intentional about not doing that because it would impact my next day and then the following day. So I was pretty stringent about, okay, I'm going to work until this time. Usually it was like 10, 30 or 11. Cause I'm not, I can't stay up much later. And um, so that I get the sleep so that, you know, the next day I can still function. And then uh, I hated this and I'm so glad it's over, but I, I worked almost every Saturday morning in my office to, that was where I was able to get big, bigger blocks of time to work. And so my family just started to know, which in some ways was fine with them because I'm such a, a productive person in the mornings that before my family was kind of annoyed with me. They just want to sit around and like watch cartoons and eat cereal. And my husband just wants to chill, you know? So for me, I was like, okay, well, I'll go to the office and be productive. And then when you all are deciding to actually do something for the day, 
around 1 p.m., then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be back and we can kind of engage. But I'm so glad that I have my Saturdays back. And I made a commitment when I graduated that regardless of work, I would, I would try as much as possible not to ever do Saturdays again. So those are a couple of things that I think personally worked for me, but I have been, I have been asked that often because of the different responsibilities and some of the nuances with my family. You know, I don't know how you did it all. And I look at them and I say, I don't know either. I I really don't like, it's not fun. Like, you know what I mean? I just don't know how I did it. And I know that at times, especially trying to finish a dissertation amid COVID, I was surviving. I, I really don't remember last summer when I was writing chapter four and five. There are parts that I don't remember. I'm so glad you said that though, Rachel, because I think we sometimes, and our culture tends to turn everything into an Instagram photo where we look like we're living our best lives and everything's going, you know, everything's coming up millhouse all the time. I'm mixing metaphors, but you hear what I'm saying. And the truth of the matter is so much of the time people are just getting through and getting by. You know, I, I I just had this conversation yesterday with a student who's struggling with the, just, just turning in the dissertation and it's great. It's just time to quit and turn it in. It could be better. (laughs) Obviously it could be better, but come on. We're just surviving. Don't you, you know? We we can't live in an Instagram photo. And I'm so glad you 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 described it that way because oftentimes that's all it is is just um, surviving. And it's also uh, get it done, and then you can go back if it's necessary and make it better later. But you just get it done enough to move on, at least for the time being. And that's really hard for a lot of us who are who have pretty high expectations, particularly of our writing and are probably motivated at least by somewhat by the potential of embarrassment if someone sees this early draft. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if I get hit by a train before I have a chance to revise this draft. And someone thinks this is how I write, which it is how I write early drafts. But it's hard to 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 do something that just suffices for the time being is and it isn't excellent work. I think that's hard. That's hard to do. I'm interested in the emotional journey as you think back. Rachel, you mentioned last summer, you don't remember. I remember I remember last summer. And it was really hard. And I know we talked about two or three times over. It was either summer or the summer before last, right, 2019 or 2020, when you were right in the midst of chapter four. Yeah, it was, it was 2020. It was early summer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But I'm, the emotional journey is an, an interesting aspect of the dissertation journey for me anyway, because I think it's something we don't talk about a whole lot. And, the, and I'm interested in your reflections. What do you wish you knew at the beginning about that aspect of the journey? Yeah. So I was marketed, oh, you can finish your dissertation in this amount of time, or you can finish your doctoral degree in this amount of time. And so coming in, that was my expectation because I'm determined. I'm a high achiever. I'm like, oh, I can do this. You know, I was very confident in my ability to do that. And what I found is that as we got closer to the dissertation, the concept proposal, you know, the prospectus, it was taking longer than I liked. And you mentioned the word 
um, what is that, what is that word where it's good enough? And I always tell my student that, that competent is good enough that you, you know, you can kind of move forward. You're not going to master it. It's not going to be perfect yet. You've got to keep practicing at it, but ultimately competent is good enough. So I had that in my brain. So for me, it was like, okay, I, I just had a different experience because my chair was so strong. I don't, I, she's just so strong in what she, in her writing and her um, methodology and how she thinks. And I found myself being frustrated because I wasn't moving as fast as I wanted. It was like every time she had more feedback and more feedback and more feedback. And, you know, it was just like, okay, when can I be done? And I, I remember telling her at one point, like chap after I'd done all the chapters and she was still giving me, you know, round five of feedback on chapter five, I just had to call her and say, I don't know what else you want me to say. Can I, you're going to have to tell me directly. Cause she was asking really good questions. I just don't know how to answer them. You know, it's like, yes, these are all great questions, but I don't know what you want from me anymore. So we had this conversation around, I don't know how much more can do <laughs> to like clarify all the things I, I my brain isn't going there anymore I guess and so that for me that was helpful because it was never that I felt like oh I don't want her to see my product or my chapter it was more of how many times am I gonna have to re you know not rewrite but like dig deeper and deeper and deeper but to get back to the emotional piece I'll be real open. I was surviving that last year in 2020, barely. And I remember in January, so I graduated in December, 2020. I remember in January, my best friend said, all of us had a horrible 2020, right? But she said, you've had the most stressful year of your entire life. And don't be surprised if your body starts to break down a bit and you get more sick or you have some other things happen. And that is exactly what has happened this year in 2021. I've had several different, I would say minor, not anything super major, but, but minor, you know, physical issues that I'm like, wow, I would have never guessed that this would be a thing. And I think emotionally too, my brain is kind of let go and I'm, and I'm feeling more things. Now, some of that has to do with 2020 for sure. But I think I just tried to keep my head down all the time when I was writing. And that was my focus, you know, keeping the kids alive and fed and engaged with them and surviving and working and writing. And so I think now I'm, my brain is just, like I said, it's kind of let go and released a lot of emotion that I didn't even know was there probably about 2020, but I was just focused yep. and no, now I'm no. kind of feeling it. Yeah, I didn't know what adrenal fatigue was by experience until after after you finish, and then you're then you've got nothing. You've got nothing. Your body has nothing, um, and that's not something you get over in a in a day or two or over a week vacation either. It's something you have to you have to recalibrate and um, and find normal again. Your body has to find normal again. It's a lot, and to think about having that a lot during COVID doesn't, I, I can't imagine. Well, I, uh, I, I when, when you, uh, Peter, when you uh, mentioned the emotional journey, uh, I thought about the journey of uh, learning itself. Uh, I, I like to cite something from uh, a scholar in China. 
He says, for any learning to happen, people go through sta three stages. And he cited poems, which I cannot do justice to uh, in the translating here all, uh, like this. But he said, you know, the first stage would be, you know, you just um, ascend a high tower and you look and look and you look beyond the horizon. And you are basically, that means, you know, you are, you don't know what's coming, what is in the horizon, or what you are, what it is you are actually searching, and you feel lonely, okay, and you are, you are trying to search. And the second stage, he said, is, you know, um, you are still working on it, and you're losing weight, and your sleeves are getting wider, and you look um, like a ghost, <laughs> the second stage. Basically, that's the stage when we are grinding, we are riding, what we are writing, and I, I feel that because you know that's that's a that's a time when you are really really uh, grinding. There's not much, uh, nothing much um, that, that we can just do about it. And the third stage would be I have been searching for him or her. He's comparing this to a love story uh, for many many days, many many months, and all of a sudden I turn back and I found that person near uh, the lights where the lights are dim. So basically at a certain point, you look back, you suddenly discover uh, you have that kind of aha moment. There it is. I remember when I was going through my ADD program, I went through a bunch of emotions, to be honest with you. The first one is kind of a, uh, a fear, as I explained earlier. I don't know whether I'm going to finish it. I didn't tell anybody. Uh, back home in China, uh, that I was doing my EDD because I, I fear that I may not finish it. Okay. So that's how, but with your encouragement, with your uh, support, I was able to do this. And the, uh, I want, there's another stage when I was uh, going through, you know, all the writing, all the papers, that's a graduate stage. But some people are losing weight, some people are gaining weight because, you know, you stress, people react to stress differently. Uh, I guess I was gaining weight, eating different things. Uh, so that's a time when I was grinding, and uh, and I I had lots of cynicism. Okay, to be honest with you, as you probably um, uh, read from some sometimes from my Facebook post, I was compl complaining. Why do we do this annotated bibliography? Okay, that's silly. We should be using Zubero to keep our notes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, in in retrospect, they are very valuable because you know they help me to put together the resources in a very quick way. So that's a time when suddenly you look back and you find the person there. <laughs> so that, that that kind of moment. So I so there's lots of cynicism. I, I also complain about why can I use, you know, first person narrative? Well, APA says you, you can, but uh, you don't have overuse. I guess I, I, I learned the balance, but I, I, I really, I really complain about this during that time. And, uh, and towards the end, you know, basically we are, we are really grinding when we are grinding, I, I've learned a, a few tricks which I would like to pass on to other students. Uh, one of the things actually is that uh, uh, when you are writing your dissertation, when you're working on the chapters, it's nice to have an outline, but sometimes it, it helps that you don't finish it the, the same night. You leave yourself a cliffhanger. You know what you're going to write. So the next morning you are more motivated to write. Whereas if you just finish the entire chapter, you, you push yourself write the entire chapter oh okay i'm done so the next morning it takes greater momentum to start something new so if you leave yourself like you know 20 at 80 percent you will find a greater um 
uh, it is much easier to finish the 20% that you have left. But of course, you have to keep yourself some notes what to write about. Otherwise, you'll forget it after the sleep. Um, so that's that's something that I find uh, very helpful. Another thing is, you know, you mentioned earlier the uh, the, the emotional uh, cycles we went through in, in our writing. So we, I, I think I had a lot of uh, imposter syndrome, so I don't know whether I'm writing things well enough, especially because I am a, a, a writer of English as a second language. So I know that my writing sucks. <laughs> okay, it sucks, okay, quite a bit. It's not that good, okay? Uh, if I, I, I turn in my writing and people uh, edit it a lot and I'm fine with it. So I have developed a very thick scheme um, because of this. Um, that's just one thing. My, my emotional defense is, well, I'm, I'm from China, okay? <laughs> so what can you do about it? So I, I don't write English as a native language. So I, I try to give myself that defense. But um, seriously, when I'm working with my kids in, in their writing, I, I tell them, and I try to apply this myself, is that uh, when you are writing, you put on different hats at different times, okay? When you are just writing, some, there, there's a time when you, you just put on your um, you know, writer's hat, you just do your brain dump, okay? You put everything there. And before, um, you know, you can't just write and keep constantly judge yourself, okay? And I found that to be very exhausting. So I said, you know, just get everything out there. So that's, that's the time. And then I put, my, put on my editor hat on later on, okay? So I, this is something I found to be extremely valuable. That really saved me the time, um, you know, from worrying myself to death. I appreciate what you're saying about the phases of writing and how that impacts your emotions because... Before, well, I did a writing retreat with the Adams Center um, probably halfway through my dissertation. And yeah, I learned a, a cliffhanger from that writing workshop. We attended the same one, I believe. Yeah, the, uh, and what I learned is that when I just write what I'm thinking about and, and think I'm doing it informally and it feels very first drafty. Then when I would go back and read it, I would say, actually, this isn't that bad. You know, I, I mean, I got it. On, I was, my goal was just to get it on paper and to get my thoughts on paper and those connections on paper. But really, then I'd go back and say, oh, this isn't so bad. So I gained more and more confidence, I think, in those writing abilities. And I see, I try to say that to students when they're really struggling with a research paper. We have a thesis in our program, our master's program they get so frozen one to just write something down outside of the outline or two to submit anything to their faculty member. And it's so hard to, for us to encourage students to remember that we were there two once and that writing it down and getting feedback is not a bad thing. It's helping you through the iterative process. That's just hard for a lot of students to wrap their brains around. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Me too. I, I love this discussion about writing because sometimes students have told me that they wish they could write as well as I do. And I just feel like my writing sucks and I'm writing in English and I am an English language speaker. Um, I, I was just looking at, as an example, uh, my co-writer and I have a book in publication. And so we received the first sample chapter back with the copy editor's marks. 
there were so many copy editor comments in the margins, it went off the page at the end and I couldn't find their last comment that they wanted me to answer to them. I can't find it because there's too many. You know, we all are on this journey of writing. And if students could understand that getting writing help is is liberating in many ways for all of us, it's it's liberating to understand that writing is a process. It's part of our thinking. When I start writing an article with friends, we just do brain dumps. And then we go back and look at it and say, well, that's not what we wanted to say. What did we want to say? And so we permutate those sentences and those words. It's just so important getting getting the feedback. How does this come across to another reader? No, that's not what I want to say. The words on the page are just the ones we accidentally chose to represent our thoughts. But our thoughts are our own. Our thoughts and our thinking and our ideas are up there. And we may have to choose different words to represent them. And to me, when someone said that to me in my doc process, that was very liberating for me that you don't have to be married to what's on the page. Be married to your ideas and get those ideas down. I think a lot of what gets, uh, I, I can speak for myself, a lot of what gets in the way of free writing. And I actually make, a. I mentioned this before on the podcast, I write daily uh, free write. I call them morning pages. I just write free writing, um, for about a half an hour every morning. But one of the, and and that practice has helped me understand one of the things that I'm a little bit afraid of is I don't trust myself in terms of the editing process. I don't trust that I'll catch every error, every spelling error, every grammatical error that I won't quite put this together in the way that it's supposed to be. And the truth of the matter is that doesn't matter. Uh, I don't need to be perfect in my, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got people around me. You, it doesn't matter which university you're, you're doing your doc at. They've got a writing center. There are people there who are, who are equipped to give you a fresh read and you're, you don't need to trust yourself. I mean, you can, you could try to editor it. You put on your editor's hat and work at it, but that doesn't mean that you're going to catch every error. And that doesn't mean that you're a terrible writer because you didn't catch every error. It means you're in the process. And, um, and, uh, and oftentimes, oftentimes editorial reviews are, um, are uh, exposing you to the, the next phase of your process, as opposed to cr- showing you what you did wrong. And, and, and just changing that perspective can be very liberating. Now you can free write, you know, now you can write and not worry about the errors because you don't need to worry about the errors. That doesn't make you a bad writer. Yeah, I wanted to share. I wanted to share something real quick that really helped me. And I actually posted this on Facebook in January 19 when I was getting into my third year of the program. And I'm a, a huge fan of Brene Brown. And uh she had she was writing at the same time, you know, another book, which I think now um I probably have. It was Braving the Wilderness. That's what it was. She was writing Braving the Wilderness. And she she talked about writing herself a post-it and she posted it and took a picture of it. And I want to share it. It says, Dear Brene, number one, it's supposed to be hard. Number two, yes, it always sucks. Number three, crazy is part of your creative process. Number four, self-doubt and uncertainty are okay. Right anyway. 
And that was a huge motivator, I think, and, and encouragement for me. Cause I'm like, if Brene Brown is having to write this down to herself and remind her these things, then there's something to this. And I have, you know, I'm there too with her. So it was really normalizing for me. Um, Scott, I really um, echo what you said earlier about, you know, writing uh, as a habit. I have uh, noticed that the more you write, the easier uh, it is to, to write, or at least it's easier it is to, uh, to get started. I just found that writing, you're writing such a personal thing, such an emotional thing, because we are always constantly uh, worrying whether somebody's going to judge our writing. And uh, I think we should have this kind of mindset. We um, should keep writing, we should seek feedback, and do not let our ego get in the way when people give us the, the feedback. And I have told you that I have struggles, okay? I uh, sometimes have an imposter syndrome. Sometimes I just say, you know what? I'm just a, a speaker of English as a second language. So what can you do about it? So sometimes I, I try to be <laughs> tough that way. And sometimes, you know, the people's feedback can be, can be harsh. I remember there's a time uh, I submitted a, a, a paper to a journal and the, the reviewers actually gave me very a harsh um, a review. And I remember one of the reviewers said, um, this doesn't sound like, um, this sounds like uh, writing by somebody who doesn't even speak the language as a native language. <laughs> and I said, you know, you got that part right. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, uh, I, I just, um, yeah, I try to get over it. And, but of course, there are other times people just uh, see through um, your writing about the ideas. And there's, there are also moments when people are extremely encouraging and, uh, and supportive. And I get both of this. So I do not let the people's feedback get in the way or people's you know, praise get into the head. So uh, I think the, um, Adam Grant wrote a lot about you know, how do you get feedback without you know, getting um, uh, extremely dis discouraged, and I also I, I also agree with uh, with both of you. You know, we we are not you know alone in this. Uh, oftentimes, we think that academic work is just a solo. You going solo in doing your research, but I just think it's a teamwork as well. Um, you know, people will give you feedback, and and I, I I totally agree with you, Scott. That sometimes as an editor, I try to put my editor hat on. But there are so many things I ignore because if I'm writing this, I probably do not know that there is a mistake here. So having somebody else having you know uh, this kind of dissertation process is just a process of actively seeking feedback from other people so that we can see our own blind spots. And sometimes it also helps that we put it aside for a time, for some time, and then we go back. We see the issues that we previously ignored. And I just found having partners. Uh, after the dissertation, uh, I tried to turn my dissertation into papers. I worked my, with my dissertation chair again, and we co-authored several papers together. And I, if I, I can't do this alone because of all the language issues, and she was, was very good at you know finding these issues, and she's providing a lot of editorial uh, help there um, as well as ideas. So I think that uh, having writing partners is... Um, it's another benefit of going through this program. So we go through this program, we get to know people and people who we can work together um, for, for a long time. So that's a good thing. 
I was just thinking that um, I had to remove, like I had to realize that they weren't personally attacking me, my writing mm-hmm. or my ideas. They were actually trying to help me think better about my ideas, think more thoroughly, go deeper into my ideas or get or, or help me become a better writer. And when I look at things like grants or program evaluations for my, for my job before my, my doctoral program, I'm like, wow, have I come a long way because it's translated into all these other pieces that I didn't anticipate. You know, you think about academic writing and dissertation as kind of a silo, but it's really helped in all these other areas. Mm-hmm.